Amen. Good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you today. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 is where we are in our study that's taken months and months to get to this point, to the last chapter of the book. Praise the Lord for all that he has shown us and taught us. Last week, we covered a text that really reaches the high point of the whole book of Revelation. We saw the promise that we wait for, the promise that we long for, the hope that we wait for, the fuel for our faithful endurance. Friends, that day is coming, and that day will be greater than we could ever imagine. That day, there will be no more curse. That day, we will reign with him. That day, his name will be on our foreheads. That day, we will see his face, and we will reign with him forever and ever. I say amen to all of that. Amen to all of that. Like, let it be. Bring it on. That's right. We can't wait for that day. What a gift of grace that day is that none of us deserve. But it is given to us freely through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Jesus Christ, who rose again in victory over sin and death and hell. Only he can save us. So I pray that this hope, this joy, this fuel for faithful endurance is yours through Christ. And if it's not, I invite you already, even now this morning, to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. He is the only hope that we have. Well, 10 years ago, I had the great privilege of running the Boston Marathon. And to be clear, I did not earn that right as most do by qualifying, by running a really fast marathon somewhere else. No, I got that spot because I know a guy. In fact, I don't even know a guy. I know a guy who knows a guy. And I got the spot, the privilege to run the Boston Marathon. Nonetheless, I ran that race, even though I did not qualify for it, and I finished that race. And you may have heard me tell a story before about Calvin Sutton, who in the days just before I left to go run that race, he said, Chris, I am praying that you win that race. And I said, oh, Mr. Calvin, there is no chance that I'm going to win that race. I didn't even qualify to run this race. The people who win the race will actually run it in half the time that I run it. I am not going to win this race. And Calvin said, well, why in the world are you going then? <laughs> I love that guy, and I miss that guy so much. We talked about him a couple times today, how I miss him shuffling through this room to meet us in that room to pray together before the day. I miss that guy, but I'm thankful that he sees the face of the Lord even now. Anyway, I started, started this story to tell you uh, that in the days leading up to that race, I did my research. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and I read a bunch of uh, articles on the internet. And what I learned as I looked forward to that race is that there is a giant Sitgo sign at Fenway Park. You know, Sitgo, the, the oil company with the orange triangle. There's a giant Sitgo sign at Fenway Park that is exactly one mile from the finish of the Boston Marathon. And so all the things I read said, when you, when you get to the Sitgo sign, you're almost home. When you get to the Sitgo sign, it's only one mile to go. What I did not read and what no one told me is that you can see the sit-go sign that is one mile from the finish line for five miles before you get to it. <laughs> and, and that fact does strange things to a mind that is already delirious from three and a half hours of running and you see the sit-go sign. And it, it, in my experience, it was devastating uh, because I thought I will never get to the sit-go sign. And when I do get there, I've got to go another mile. And uh, it was miserable. I tell you that story about the sit-go sign for two reasons today. First, if you ever get a chance to run the Boston Marathon, you will know. You will know uh, that that sign is a long way off, um, even though it's just a mile from the finish line. Second reason why I tell you this is I believe in our study of Revelation, we have just come into sight of the sit-go sign. 
Like, we're not, we're not quite to the finish yet. We can see the sign. We've got a long way still to go. We've got some work left to do. Many scholars refer to uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 6 through the rest of the book, as the epilogue of Revelation. Some call it a postscript of Revelation. I don't want you to get the wrong idea when we turn this corner today. I don't want you to think that the end is just around the corner. It's really not. We've got a lot of running left to do. And so I want, uh, I want us to finish strong as we wrap up our study over the next several weeks. Uh, we've got weeks left to go in our study of Revelation. And, and God has much, I believe, to teach us as we wrap up this study. So let's read together today. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 9 is what we're going to cover. Just verses 6 through 9. And uh, let's read it. Starting in verse 6, God's word says, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all that you have shown us and taught us over the last few months in our study of Revelation. And we ask that over the next few weeks, as we wrap up this study, that you would burn those truths deep into our hearts in such a way that we would never forget them. And we ask that you would help us apply those truths in our daily lives, that we would go about our time on this earth deeply affected by what you have taught us. We want our lives to be different as a result of this time in your word, but we know that we need your help in the application of this truth. So teach us today, change us today by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start out by looking closely at the first phrase in verse 6 that says, He said to me, these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. This is a giant statement that we desperately need to understand and that we desperately need to hear today. Now, this is probably the angel who's been showing John these things, who is speaking to him. And as he wraps things up, this angel takes time to remind John that, quote, these words are faithful and true. And as we think about that, we need to understand on the one hand, this angel is making a statement that is a declaration of the veracity and trustworthiness of the message that John has received. He is saying basically, these things that I've said to you, these things that you have heard, these things that you have seen, these words are faithful and true. And I am totally confident that that angel is referring to the things that he has just said to John. Those things that he just finished saying to John about how there will be no more curse, there will be no more night, you will see his face, you will reign with him. I'm confident that when he says these words are faithful and true, he's talking about those things he had just, just said. But I am also confident that he is not just referring to those last few things that he has said to John, but rather is referring to all that John has seen in the book of Revelation, all that John has received in this experience with the Lord. And even beyond that, I am totally confident that this statement of the veracity and trustworthiness of these words applies not just to the book of Revelation, but to the entire Bible. These words are faithful and true. 
After all, the Bible that we read, when we read it, it has 66 books. It has 40-ish authors that were written over, and it was written over a span of some 2,000 years. But we know when we read the Bible, it is ultimately one book. It is ultimately one book with one author and one message. And that message is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Here at First Baptist Church, we believe that these words are faithful and true. We believe that these words, all of them, are faithful and true. And that's why we teach and preach the way we do. Because we're confident that 2 Timothy chapter 3 is true. When it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We believe it is all faithful and true. And it is all profitable to us. And so we want to study all of it. Amen? And we need to hear that. We need to hear that today, especially. Because we live in a culture that is struggling to know who can you trust? Who can we trust and where can we find the truth? We need to hear these words are faithful and true. And as you have this conversation with your friends, as they say, who can we trust anymore? If we can't trust the news, we can't trust the government, we can't trust anybody... Who can we trust? You have opportunity every day in your conversation to say, we can trust the Bible. Take it up and read it. We need to hear that today because many people like us Christians, evangelical Christians even, are seeming to adopt a dangerously skeptical posture toward any authoritative source of information. All around us, people are saying things like, question everything. Trust no one. We're hearing people declare that every authority is evil. We need to hear today that these words are faithful and true. I really fear that this popular modern posture of the rejection of all kinds of authority and every truth claim will, in the end, lead to a rejection of the Bible. Like, it's, it's a dangerous road to go down to say, all authority is evil, all authority is against you, don't trust anyone, question everything. Man, you don't take that posture when you read the Bible. These, are, these words are faithful and true. And we must read it and submit to it. So friends, I'm calling us today, in light of the words of this angel in verse 6, I'm calling us away from the television, calling us away from the internet, away from YouTube and Facebook. Friends, if you are looking for truth, look at the book. Eat the book. Do your research in the book. If you're going to go down a rabbit hole, go down the rabbit hole of Bible study. In fact, go down this rabbit hole. Show that, show that photo. Go down that rabbit hole right there. This is a really interesting artistic representation of the cross-references in the Bible. At, at the bottom of this picture, you've got all these little dashes, all these little lines that extend downward. That represents every chapter of the Bible, right? And the books of the Bible are shaded differently. I don't know if you can see that from here. Some of them are light, dark, light, dark, things like that to, to separate the books of the Bible. And those lines, the colorful arches, are every time the Bible makes a reference to itself somewhere. So this is, a, this is an artistic presentation of 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. Like, you want to go down a rabbit hole and get lost in study and, and research? Get lost in that, how this is one book with one author and one message. It is all connected to itself. If you're looking for a rabbit hole to go down, I would recommend going down that one and not some of the ones that we are spending our time going down. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, as members of First Baptist Church in Harrisburg, need to know what the Bible says. 
We need to know what the Bible says. These words are faithful and true. We need to know what the Bible says or else we will make ourselves look like fools. I saw an interview this week of a lady uh, outside of a rally and uh, the, the interviewer was asking her, oh, what's, what's going on here? What are your thoughts on what's going on in this rally? And she said, well, I really believe that what's going on here in America right now is what Jesus talks about when he says he's separating the sheep from the goats. Jesus does talk about that. I believe what we're seeing right now is a separation from the sheep and the goats. And the interviewer said, well, which are you? And she said, well, I'm a goat because I'm sure not a sheep. And I thought, oh, if, if we're... If, if you know that story, you don't want to be a goat. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be the goat in that story. If you've read the Bible and understand the story, you want to be a sheep. You want to be a sheep when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, not a goat who is condemned. Friends, we need to know our Bible so we don't say stupid things like that. We need to know what the Bible says. These words are faithful and true. We want to be students of these words. And I want to encourage you to be in the book for yourself. I want to encourage you to be a student of God's word for yourself. Don't just take someone else's word for it. In Acts, Paul commends the Bereans because they received the word that he preached with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if it was so. You remember these guys? They received the word of God with eagerness. They heard the preaching with gladness and eagerness and they received it. But then they took the time to examine the scriptures every day to see if it was so. They took responsibility for the things that they heard. Paul accepts accountability with humility for himself when he says in Galatians chapter 1, look at this. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So friends, just because our pastor said it, just because even your pastor said it, doesn't necessarily make it right and true. I have a huge responsibility for the things that I say as I stand before you to deliver God's word. Huge responsibility. And I take that very seriously. That is not a joke. What we do up here, what I do up here, I don't treat it as a game. It is serious. It is life and death the way I approach it. Eternal life and death. I have a grave responsibility for the things that I say to you as I stand to deliver God's word. But you also have a serious responsibility for the things that you hear. You are responsible for the things that you hear, and I want you to take that seriously. These words are faithful and true. We want to be grounded in these words, right? We want to be students of this word, right? Not caught up by everything that flies around on the news or on the internet, but grounded in the truth of God's word. These words are faithful and true. If you're looking for what is true, If you're looking for what is right, here it is. Be a student of it. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time on every other rabbit hole that the internet provides. So on the one hand, this angel makes this great statement about the veracity and trustworthiness of the message that John has received. And on the other hand, this language of faithful and true, faithful and true, closely connects the Lord Jesus with the words. 
After all, what we have seen in Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, to the church at Laodicea, it, back in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus identifies himself, quote, as the amen, the faithful and true witness. So, these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. And these words are all about Jesus. And you do not waste one second of time reading it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it. The angel says these words are faithful and true. And read on in verse 6. It says, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7 says, And behold, I am coming quickly. That is spoken by Jesus. There are three big things I want us to see in this section. First, these words that we're talking about are faithful and true. They are faithful and true because they come from God himself. He is the source of the message. It's not the angel who is the source of the revelation. It's not the prophets who are the source of the revelation. It's not the bondservants who are the source of the revelation. It's not John who is the source of the revelation. No, all of this comes from him comes from the Lord. He passes it down to us through them. There's like this chain of revelation in the text. But what is most important is that it ultimately comes from the Lord. You need to remember that as you read your Bible. As you read your Bible, whether you're reading Revelation, whether you're reading the Gospel according to John or Mark or Luke, whether you're reading Paul's letters, whether you're reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, no matter what human author you're reading in the Bible, we always need to remember that ultimately this is God's Word. Ultimately, this is breathed out of his mouth. He is the source of all of the revelation. It is true and faithful because it comes from him. That's the first thing we need to see here. The second thing we need to see here is something I talked about last week, that the Apostle John is glad to assume the role of prophet and bondservant. He is, he is glad to be merely a declarer of God's word. He is glad to be merely a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that he is not the source he is just the messenger. He is just the servant. Let's be like that. Let's be content just to deliver God's word to his people. Let's not try to be the center of attention. Let's not assume that we are the source of the information. Let's just be content to be servants, bondservants, prophets who speak forth the word of God. And the third thing, it's probably the most important in this section, is there is a sense of urgency to all of this. There's a sense of urgency to all of this. Notice that the Lord has shown us, quote, the things which must soon take place. And then right on the heels of that declaration from the angel, Jesus himself declares, behold, I am coming quickly. One preacher says that this text, all of the postscript of Revelation, is, quote, pregnant with urgency. And we want to see it that way. Even though we're going to stretch it out and we're going to take a lot of time to read through it, we want you to see that there is a, a deep sense of urgency to all of this. There is not time to waste. These are things which must soon take place. Jesus is coming quickly. And so we don't have time to mess around. We don't have time to play games. We don't have time for distractions from the world. There is a sense of urgency to all of this. George Eldon Ladd said, the Christian community should always live under the ex." expectancy of the imminent coming of the Lord. No man knows the day nor hour, and no one can set dates or calculate the time of his coming. But every generation must be awake as though the coming of Christ was at the threshold. The biblical warnings involve a spiritual and moral tension of expectancy and perspective. 
That's why Laura read from 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about how people will scoff. People will scoff and they'll say, oh, it's not soon. It's not soon. It's been thousands of years. That's what people are saying now. It's been 2,000 years. And you're talking about the, the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, sooner than it was 2,000 years ago. Sooner than it was yesterday. We want to live with urgency and expectation of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if our study of Revelation has built that sense of urgency in us. I hope it has. And if not, I hope what we see at the end here, as we wrap these things up and seek to apply all of the things that we have seen in Revelation, I hope that that sense of urgency will only grow. These are the things which must soon take place. Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. Has Revelation built a sense of urgency in us? Jesus, though, doesn't just say, behold, I am coming quickly. He says, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It's a really strange sentence. And I think this might be the most important part of the day today. As that sentence corrects some of our misguided approach to Revelation, that sentence will fix our misguided approach to Revelation and fix our misguided approach to prophecy in general. You see, when we think of prophecy, we usually think of it simply as a declaration of future events. And oftentimes we read Revelation as merely the declaration of the events in the future. But this phrase teaches us that there is more than that. Prophecy, rightly understood, whether it's in Revelation or elsewhere in the Scriptures, prophecy, rightly understood, is the Word of God for the people of God. The Word of God delivered to the people of God. It's usually not just limited to the people of God, even the outsiders to the family. It is the Word of God for the people of God for the purpose of bringing about life-changing action. Prophecy is never given just so you can mark on your calendar the things that are coming up. Prophecy is always given to bring about life-changing action. And Revelation is the same way. And we're going to see that clearly in the postscript of the book. In fact, he shifts gears out from apocalyptic genre, out from prophetic genre, and he gets back into epistolary form. He goes back to writing a letter to the people to say, this is intended to be pastorally practical for you. And we want to remember that. I love Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson is a commentator that I have uh, actually become familiar with kind of midway through our study of Revelation. But he's been beating this drum from day one. He's been beating this drum that it's not a crystal ball. Revelation is not a crystal ball. It's a discipleship manual. Look what he says. Daryl Johnson says, the book of Revelation is a discipleship manual, not a crystal ball. It's sad to see how this powerfully hope-giving book is turned into a predictor of the next horrible thing that will happen in the world book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. The book is about him. Any interpretation of the book that does not lead us to his feet is simply off the mark. The whole point of the book is to engender an encounter with him. And then listen to what he says next. An encounter that then empowers us to follow him in his paradoxical way. Like all of this has been about seeing Jesus and living differently because we have seen him. All of it is intended to be practical, not theoretical. Practical. John MacArthur also nails it, even though I have disagreed with him profoundly along the way in some points of our study of Revelation. He nails it on this when he says, God does not command believers to read Revelation merely to satisfy their curiosity about the future. 
That, that may be totally disappointing to some of you. But he's right. God does not command believers to read Revelation merely to satisfy their curiosity about the future. He did not inspire it to provide material for detailed chronological charts of end-time events. God inspired Revelation for one purpose, to reveal the glory of his Son and to call believers to live godly, obedient lives in light of his soon return. The purpose of Revelation is not to provide entertainment, but to provide motivation for godly living. The glorious future realities described in Revelation compel a commitment on the part of believers to lead holy lives. Christ's imminent return demands immediate obedience. Like if you didn't track with the rest of that, spend some time on that last sentence. Christ's imminent return demands immediate obedience. That is why he declares a blessing on those who not hear the word of the prophecy, not understand the word of the prophecy. He pronounces a blessing on those who heed the words of the prophecy. That word heed is super important. It's the same word that John uses throughout his gospel and his letters to refer to obeying, observing, doing what the word says. He's not talking here about just knowing. He's talking about obeying. How do we obey words of prophecy? I'll show you some places where he uses this word. Look at John chapter 14. Jesus says the most outrageous thing that would get him labeled as a legalist in any Baptist church in America today. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keep there is the same word for heed in Revelation chapter 22. He says, if you love me, you will heed my command. You will obey my commandments. Jesus says a similar thing in another place where he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Friends, when we get to the end of Revelation, we don't just say, all right, now I'm going to chart this out and I'm going I'm to line my room with the order of events. We need to be asking ourselves, what do I do? How do I heed these words? Of, how do I keep this and obey it like I do his commandments? In verse 22 of that same chapter, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Same word as in Revelation for heed. He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me, he who does not love me does not keep my words, does not heed my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but my father's who sent me. In Revelation, he's pronouncing a blessing on those who heed the words of the prophecy. Similar language in 1 John chapter 2. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep or heed his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is a constant refrain in John's letters to his churches. We see it in chapter 3, verse 23. When he says, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Jesus says there is a blessing for those who heed or keep these words of prophecy. So Revelation is about more than just the, the picture of future events to come. It's a call to action. And we've tried to say that from the beginning. We've tried to say that from the beginning of our study. I tried to hang this banner over our whole study to say that Revelation gives us a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, through suffering, through persecution, unto certain and eternal victory in Christ. 
boil it down to two phrases. Revelation is about awestruck wonder and faithful endurance. It's not about a timeline of just future events. That picture of the things to come is to change our lives. It's to inspire worship and faithful endurance that comes through obedience. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And this is super interesting. Maybe, maybe a thing that we could quickly overlook and just say, oh, this is John identifying himself as the author. But he uses this same kind of logic in his gospel and his letters as well. In fact, in John 21, starting in verse 24, it says, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose, even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John says at the end of his gospel, he said, I saw these things. I heard these things. And I'm the one who's told you this. I'm an eyewitness of these things. And I'm the one who has told you all these things about Jesus so that you'll know that he's the son of God and that you'll believe in him and that you'll have life in his name. That's the chapter before. John says, I saw and I heard and I told him to you. He says the same thing in his letter, 1 John chapter 1. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in his letter, he says, I heard some things, I saw some things, and I'm telling you those things. He said that in his gospel, he said that in his letter, and now he is saying it in Revelation, right? I have heard these things, I have seen these things, and I am telling you these things. He is an eyewitness of this truth. And friends, that is a pattern for us to follow. We saw that in small group Bible study today, if you were paying close attention, that Solomon said, I learned some stuff, and I was really careful how I wrote it down so I could spread it to the next generation. That is the pattern for all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, it's, a, it's an obligation for us who have studied Revelation for a while now. We have heard some things, and we have seen some things. And it is not just to fill up our hearts, it's not just to fill up our brains, it's to equip us to be able to share those things with other people. We need to follow the pattern that is all throughout the scriptures. God never shows someone something just to keep it to themselves. He teaches and shows to equip them to share it with others. Let's follow that pattern. Let's hear it, let's see it, and let's tell it. And look at what happens at the end of verse 8. It says, And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Does that sound familiar to you? He just did this. He just made this same mistake back in chapter 19, right? Back in chapter 19, the angel said to him, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John made this mistake once, three chapters ago. And now he's making the mistake again. So what do we do with this? Well, we could dog on John. And some people do that. Some people say, oh, John, get it together, man. You are slow to catch on. Maybe you're stubborn. 
Maybe you're unbelieving. Maybe this is evidence of your sinfulness. John, get it together, man. We could dog on John or we could receive this as a challenge to our own hearts. Because what we see when we read this is that after everything John saw, after everything he heard, worship was the only thing he knew to do. Worship was the immediate response of his heart to this. Worship is compelled by the revelation, even though it's misplaced here. And I don't know that that's often the problem that we have here in this room. I don't know that often the problem is we're, we're, we're just, our hearts are just on our faces for worship and we're worshiping the wrong thing. I think more often we're like begging you to worship. We're like trying to pull it out of you. It's not just your heart response. Man, I, I think if we see Jesus, we'll be like John. We'll fall on our faces and we will worship. And we want to get the object of our worship right. So here's some lessons from this last little scene. First, our response to the revelation, whether it's the book of Revelation or a picture of Jesus that we see in his word elsewhere, our response to the revelation should be worship. That's number one. Our response must be worship. Number two, God must be the object of our worship. We don't want to make the mistake that John made. And maybe the danger, uh, the mistake that we're in danger of making in this room is that we would worship people up on this platform. Or we would worship the church as, a, as an organization. Worship God, not the angel. The angel's good. Don't miss the main thing, though, because of good things. Our response should be worship. God must be the object of our worship. And then one of the things we learn from this is you don't have to be perfect to be useful. You, you don't have to be perfect even to see things that are incredible. John twice tries to worship an angel. Twice is told not to do that, to worship God. John is not perfect, but God never uses perfect people. He doesn't use perfect people. If, if all he used were perfect people, we, we wouldn't have a chance to be used by God. He uses imperfect people all the time, even to communicate great things. You don't have to be perfect to be useful, to see things like John saw, to deliver the message like John did. So there's hope for all of us. I think there are four applications that we want to make from this text today. I think they, I think they really do come right out of the text. First one, is that these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. Therefore, we are called to know them. We are called to study them. We are called to devote our time and attention to the study of God's word. We are called to avoid distractions and time wasters. Is that a problem for you like it is for me? Like, is it easy for you to flip open your phone and spend time doing other things rather than studying God's word? I guess a real problem. These words are faithful and true, so we should avoid distractions and time wasters. These words are faithful and true, so we should study them together. One of the great joys of my life is sitting down with small groups of you to talk about God's word. Sometimes it's in my Sunday school class, which is great. I love my Sunday school class. I love getting together with them and talking through God's word. Sometimes it's on Tuesday with a few guys who help me in the preparation of God's word. Sometimes it's on Wednesday nights with a different group of guys as we share our lives together and talk about God's word. It is always good to get together with you and talk about God's word. It is helpful to me to be in small groups where we discuss God's word. There's a little bit of a danger when I go off all by myself and study his word. If all I ever do is study his word in isolation, I tend to be imbalanced. 
I want to study it in isolation. I want to study it privately and individually. But man, there's a value to being together. And so I encourage you to be together in your study of God's word. These words are faithful and true. So know them and study them. Dedicate your life to this. Go down this rabbit hole. You can spend your whole life mining the gold that's here. And you'll be better for it. These words are faithful and true, so study them. Number two application is don't just study them. Obey them. James tells us in his letter to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. You are all hearers of the word. In fact, most of you are like dynamite hearers of the word. You are hearing the word here in small groups. You are listening to podcasts and sermons. You are, you are like master's level hearers of God's word. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Be a doer of God's word. Does you no good. It is not the design of God's word just to fill you with information. We are called to do what he says. Jesus illustrates this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You know the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus spends a great deal of time talking to a crowd of people about what the life of a disciple looks like, right? And then at the end of it, he tells a story about the importance of doing his word. He says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, everyone who hears and does may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind slammed and blew against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. What's the difference between those two guys? Well, we want to say it's the foundation, it's the foundation. No, in the way Jesus tells the story, the difference is one of them heard and did. One of them heard and obeyed. One of them heard and heeded, and the other one heard and did not. The other one only heard, and his, his house came crashing down. Friends, we're, we're at the point in Revelation. Are we going to be merely hearers of the word, or are we going to be doers? Are we going to be merely nerds who can put some things on a timeline, or are we going to worship God? Are we going to endure by faith? Are we going to proclaim the gospel to the nations? Are we going to do what he says or merely hear what he says? These words are faithful and true. Therefore, obey them, heed them, do what he says to do. And one of the things that he says over and over and over to do in Revelation is worship. Worship God. We see it. We see it everywhere. We see it in those throne room scenes. We see it amongst the, uh, the, the saints and the martyrs. We see the angels constantly worshiping him. We see John bowing down twice to try to worship an angel. The angel says, don't do that. Worship God. Worship God. That's one of the things that we must take away. That's one of the things that we must do. We must do in response to revelation is worship God. And that shouldn't be like pulling teeth. Right? It shouldn't be that we have to beg you to worship God. We should hear these things and see these things, and, and you, you should be like pulling at the leash to worship God. It's one of the things we can do in obedience to God's word in Revelation is worship him. The other thing we can do in obedience to God's word, this is number four, is we can tell others. We can follow this pattern where we hear some things, we see some things, 
and we tell some things to our neighbors. And so I want to ask just quickly how you think you can do that this week. How do you think you can tell others what you have heard and seen of the Lord Jesus Christ this week? Maybe more specifically, how do you think you can tell others about some of the things you've heard and seen about the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation? We want to be like John. We want to be like Paul. We want to be like every faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who doesn't just have an experience with him, but tells others all about him. So let's be, as Pastor Dylan would say, bold witnesses. Bold witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us such incredible access to these faithful and true words of yours. And we want to be good stewards of that access, that great gift that you have given. We want to study your word. We want to know it. We want to devote our time and attention to it, avoid distractions and time wasters as we study your word in private and in small groups here and at home and at work and at school. We want to We want to take in as much of your word that is faithful and true as we can. Father, we don't desire to be mere hearers of your word. We want to be doers as well. So call us forth to action, especially here as we wrap up our study of Revelation. Call us to action. Show us what obedience to the word looks like. We want to be like that wise man who heard and acted on the words. Father, we know that one way we can obey your word and revelation is by worshiping you. So I pray that as we sing in just a second that you'll be honored, that we will be compelled to worship you, that it will be our natural response to worship you. God, I pray that you give us obedience this week to tell others about the things we have heard and seen. Oh, Father, that we would be able to say like John and Peter, we can't help but speak of the things we have heard and seen, no matter the cost. God, make us bold witnesses for the sake of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.